One, two, three. Hi, everyone. This is Joseph Anderson with Keeping Up With Joe. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Sarah Avila, and a special guest, Kristen Miller. Kristen is a professional copywriter and an up-and-coming historical fantasy author with a passion for Germanic mythology. Her critical essay, Swords, Serpents, and Symbolic Imagery, examining the Sigmund passage in Beowulf, received second place in the Jean Conjo Prize for Literary Criticism, as well as departmental honors from her alma mater. She runs a blog focusing on Germanic linguistics, culture, and literature. Kristen graduated magna cum laude from University of Redlands with a degree in literature and history with an emphasis on Anglo-Saxon and Nordic epic literature. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Can we get an applause button? <laughs> I think we need one of those sometime soon. <laughs> That'd be, that would be cool. That's when we have like a professional, a professional sound guy doing this for me instead of me doing it. Then we'll have a we'll have the applause. Love it. Love everything we need. Somebody in the background with a whole soundboard. <laughs> that, that's the dream. An audience to applause. You know. <laughs> So, Kristen, can you uh, can you explain what is Germanic mythology? So, um, a lot of people are surprisingly a little confused on the term Germanic. Um, Germanic mythology is pretty widespread. It includes any mythology that stems from the Germanic-speaking cultures. So, not just German, but also the Scandinavian languages, Icelandic, uh, uh, even English is a Germanic language, Dutch. Uh, and it's sort of just this broad field. A lot of it overlaps a little bit here and there. Um, but yeah, it, it basically just any kind of myth, whether it be gods, heroes, what have you. Yeah, I actually learned that recently that that English was a Germanic language. I didn't know that. It's funny, a lot of people think it's Latin, which I can get where that comes from. Right. But, um, if you look back at Anglo-Saxon, uh, it was an entirely Germanic language a thousand years ago, basically up until the French came over. And then you sort of had this weird divide where uh, French speakers were seen as more elite and the fully Germanic Anglo-Saxon speakers were seen as more of the the poor, I guess, or the lower mm. classes. And so French just gradually got mixed in with English. And now we have this horrible Frankenstein of language. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, and that's partly why that's partly why English is Germanic is because I think the Saxons were a Germanic tribe that came over from the continent to England and then took to basically took England over away from, I think, the Celtic people that were there originally. Yes, precisely. And then there's also um, in like, what is it, the 800, 900s uh, CE or so, you also have the Viking influence, which a lot of places names in pretty much all of the UK uh, still sort of reflect that as well. Right. Well, how did you get into that or interested in this Germanic magic? <laughs> uh, 
I don't, I guess it was kind of a gradual thing. People have asked me that before and I never wear exactly to start. Um, my family is uh, an immigrant family from Germany. I was born here, but I was raised a little bit with the language, a little bit with the stories. Oh, wow. And I just sort of um, expanded on that as I grew up and, you know, sort of got into my own interests. I really honed in on the language for a while and then kind of expanded outward from there. Um, so I also kind of I tend to tell people Tolkien did have an impact as well because I was really into Lord of the Rings when I was younger. And uh, as I got into the more academic side of things, I realized he was very impacted mm -hmm. by Germanic myth and it had a really heavy influence on his writing. And so that made me more curious about it. And then I kind of delved into it on my own and found my passion, basically. Did you see that that Tolkien movie that came out in 2019? Yes, I did. I did. And, you know, I know the movie was a little controversial because a lot of people um, were upset that his Catholicism wasn't heavily emphasized, since that did also very heavily influence his writing. But for me, because I'm more into the Germanic myth side of things, I felt like <laughs> a lot of it was very well represented. <laughs> no, I, I so. love that movie. I, I, I looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes before I saw it. Mm -hmm. And I had been looking forward to it coming out, and I saw that it only had, I think, I don't remember what it was, but it didn't have the best score on Rotten Tomatoes, so I wasn't yeah. really expecting much. But then when I went and saw it, I thought it was amazing. Yeah, I loved it. I've already watched it a few times, and, you know, one of, some of my favorite myths actually get, like, a little sort of Easter egg mention within the movie, so I was mm. super stoked to see that. Yeah. Sarah, have you seen that? What is it called? No. <laughs> okay. You you would know it if you'd seen it. <laughs> okay. No, I guess I live in a cave. That's okay. <laughs> it wasn't like super super uh, like widely. It kind of got a wide release, but I don't think it was super like it's not like everybody saw it like a Marvel movie or something. Yeah, I think they spent like half of their advertising budget on my Facebook page because <laughs> <laughs> I saw it like ten times a day when it was getting ready to come out. Yeah, I saw it a lot too on my Facebook page, so I think I must somehow fit into the the likely to watch Tolkien, or maybe maybe not. Maybe it was through my friends sharing it. Maybe that's how I saw it. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Was it like in small theaters or just like international? You know, uh, more uh, mainstream, normal people theaters, not those like little side ones. I think it had a mainstream release, but okay. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. <laughs> I, think, I think it started in limited release. I think, I'm not sure, but I think it started in limited release and it, it did get a wider release. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I'll try and check it out. <laughs> so when I first found out that we were going to be talking to Kristen, I actually saw that she was interested in, in Germanic myth. And so I went and Googled it, Germanic myth on YouTube. And I, because oh. again, I should have known. I should have. I put this together. I did put it together eventually. But I was thinking, oh, I don't really know a lot about German mythology. And then yeah. I realized, oh, wait a second. This is this is just Germanic myth. I understand that. I mean, I'm so similar to Chris and my family. Not similar to Chris in terms of the German thing. But my family came here from Iceland. So oh, I grew really? Up, yeah. So I grew up like this is something I, I've never studied it. Uh, I've never studied Germanic myth in a like formal setting, but uh -huh. growing up, I mean, this is just the stuff was part of my life. You know, I mean, I literally have like a cup in front of me that says 
the Viking World Tour, 793 England, 795 Wales, 799 France. And this is just like, I have Viking stuff everywhere around this room that I'm in right now. Oh my God, that's awesome. My mug is Vikings too, but it's like a little serious. I got it from Iceland, actually. It's a little Viking face that looks all serious and it's like happy, sad, angry, but it's the same in like every single picture, just this serious looking Viking. I've seen that. (laughs) I've seen that one. There's a store in Berkeley, California. I don't know if you've been there. It's called the Nordic House. They have like a bunch of that stuff there. It's really cool. I have not been there, but that sounds like some place I should go. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You just have a good talk with the, the lady who owns it. She's she's all into that stuff. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I had... I, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, I noticed that you had a Nordic last name, and I was going to ask about it, but I didn't realize that it was Icelandic, so that's awesome. Actually, my uh, that's actually not even that Nordic. My actual name... I don't have my my actual name is my Icelandic name is Gottskalkson. Oh so, wow, that's what? very Icelandic. Um, okay. Anderson's actually comes from so my dad's Swedish, my mom's Icelandic, so the Anderson comes from the Swedish side. That's kind of more mainstream in America. Gotcha. But, yeah, I, I was gonna say like most Nordic last names have the sun or sen or some variation because they had like mm-hmm. the the naming system that was based off of people's fathers or what have you. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting. What yeah, I still it? have a lot of family in Iceland, too, actually. Oh, awesome. Do you ever go visit? Name? Oh, sorry. Blah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're cool. Sorry, what are you saying? Oh, is that a last name? Like, do all of your siblings have this whatever name before Anderson, or is this just you? So everybody in my family has both, um, has two middle names. And one's sort of a run-of-the-mill American, English, whatever you want to call it, middle name. And then the other one's an Icelandic name. So, yeah, we each have a different Icelandic name. My my last name, or my name, my Icelandic name is actually a last name, right, with the S-O, son. So it is someone's last name, yeah. but I got it as a, I got it as a second middle name. I don't know why, but it's the family, it's basically the the family name. When, when, the, when my Icelandic family came here, so they came here after their hometown got burned down by a volcano. And so then they came here. And then they basically just took on Gottskalkson because they didn't want to, like like Kristen was saying, if they wanted to follow the traditional Icelandic tradition, they would have just kept being named after their father. But yeah. they wanted to adopt sort of the more American way of just taking one family surname. So that's kind of, that, and that's how I ended up having this name, basically. Okay, okay. Sorry for interrupting <laughs> you, Kristen. No, no worries. That's, just, that's really interesting. I was enjoying hearing more about that as well. <laughs> I don't think Sarah has any. Sarah, do you have any Viking DNA? Oh, and that was what I was going to say earlier, and I just didn't think it was that important. No, I was like, man, I wish us Latin people had some (laughs) sort of Viking. Um, No, no, but I do know that my grandpa used to work on a uh, watermelon farm, (laughs) and I think that's where my love of watermelons came from. Mm. Uh, oh yeah yeah that's... you never know stuff like that can totally be genetic it's really surprising actually <laughs> <laughs> i i doubt it but you know what it, we're gonna stick with that story for sure <laughs> that's definitely why <laughs> so Kristen, what are some of your favorite myths in do you have any in particular, I'm really interested in the Norse mythology. Do you have any particular stories that really t- like really spoke to you or that really stuck with you from Norse mythology? Yeah, so the thing is, like I guess a lot of people assume just because they know that I'm really into myth, they assume I'm really into the gods, mm. which actually 
isn't so much my thing. I mean, I do have kind of just this broad knowledge of it. I mean, I know their names. I know a little bit about them. Um, I've read portions of the Poetic Edda and mm-hmm. the the Hevemald. I feel like now I'm like, have you heard Icelandic? I'm going to be butchering Icelandic words. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Hevemald. Um I've read portions of them, but they're just not really my focal texts. Mm. I'm actually a little bit more interested in sort of like the heroic figures. Um, so mm. Siegfried or Sigurd from like Das Nibelungenlied is the continental ver- version. But then you have the Volsunga um, Saga from Iceland, I believe. Um, but he appears in like a bunch of different Germanic texts kind of just broad across all the different areas with Germanic languages. Um, So I've done a lot of comparative work uh, with that sort of thing. Um, Also with the same, that character's father, um, Sigmund, which is uh, the one that I wrote my critical essay on. um, I've done a little bit of comparative work with him as well. So kind of just that mythological family is my main focal point. And then Mm -hmm. uh, Beowulf as well is very close to my heart. I just read your essay on Beowulf today on your on your website, actually. Oh, you did! Awesome, thank mm. you. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I like Beowulf too. I mean, he's kind of the, he's one of the earlier characters I was introduced to. I think most people have to read Beowulf in school when they're younger. Yeah. So I think I read it like most people in school. But he was a Danish king, I think, right? Yeah, he would. He's uh, Geatish, I believe, which is. Technically, sort of like I think the Geats were somewhere kind of between, like back and forth between Denmark and Sweden, because some mm. people argue that they were the same as the Utes, which were from Jutland in Denmark mm. and northern Germany. Okay. Um, but it's it's kind of not really agreed upon, as I understand it, whether or not they're the exact same people. But the bulk of the story does take place in Denmark. Mm, okay. And who's who's Sigurd? Uh, so Sigurd is trying to think of like what would be like what most people know okay so this one i kind of a really random comparison and this is actually something i found out more recently um but you know the movie uh django unchained (laughs) (laughs) very good segue there very natural segue (laughs) yeah that is actually a very interesting adaptation of sigurd's story no i mean obviously there is a lot of um what would be the word? I guess like creative license, license taken. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it is sort of inspired by the Sigurd story. And that would be probably the most recent interpretation that people are familiar with. Um, another thing that people would be familiar with from his story is there is the opera by Wagner. Um, mm. And everyone knows Ride of the Valkyries. And right, that right. is from that opera based off of Sigurd's story. So it's been adapted like, I don't even know how many different ways, but if you go back far enough, there are older, much older texts from pretty much every Germanic speaking culture. Mm, interesting. What did he do? I, I mean, kind of the typical Germanic era thing. He slayed a dragon and then got murdered in a family feud. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That sounds pretty Norse. Most Norse stories yeah. in that way. <laughs> yeah, pretty typical. <laughs> but actually, historically, the thing is, even that's kind of that might be an archetype of Germanic myth. Mm-hmm. Historically, Iceland, 
so I don't know why. I don't know why because Icelanders today, I don't, I, I don't think they're anything like they used to be. I mean, I, I, sorry, Icelanders, if I'm like slandering you or maybe you're happy <laughs> about that. Because back in the day, they almost there was one point when there were so many uh, blood feuds. So there was a lot yes. of different. You know about this. There's a lot of different clans in Iceland, and there were so many, so many blood feuds, and they were killing each other off so badly that they basically had to, I think submit to foreign rule in order to get a, a handle on it before they all like massacred each other is how, how I understand it. That might, cause, cause Iceland was ruled by, was it Denmark briefly or Norway? I actually always get confused on that one. Um, I don't think they were, I could be wrong, but I don't think they were ever ruled by Norway, but they were definitely ruled by Denmark. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty much always a blood feud. And if it's not a blood <laughs> feud, that's surprising. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. I wonder why. It's so funny that that's such a big part of their, of their, of their myth. Is there any reason well, for that? I think, or... I, I think uh, there's sort of just this, this really strong um, emphasis and value placed on family because they valued mm -hmm. the ancestors so, so much in you yeah. know Germanic paganism. Uh, that that really just kind of solidified this idea of like shared ancestors, shared bond, you know, you are yeah. loyal to your family above all else. Yeah. And that extreme loyalty coupled with this sort of sense of hyper-masculine pride <laughs> mm -hmm. kind of inevitably, I guess, resulted in families not really getting along and people having an issue because, oh, you slighted my sister in this way. And so now I have yeah. to kill you. And then you kill them, and then now everybody's coming back after your family because you killed somebody from their exactly. family. And it just kind of goes on forever. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I have un question. See. Um, <laughs> so, upon this mythological, uh, I guess, you know, interest that you have, is it like in your personal writing that you do, or is it more of like that's something that you study, or. You know, I'm just just curious, about, like, how does this impact your life? Um, and I don't know, do you get paid to write about this stuff? Or, <laughs> yeah, like, what's going on with all of this? So that's actually a very great segue into talking about my fiction. Um, <laughs> so some of my fiction, yes, it's very much influenced by this sort of stuff. Um, I did a lot of my you know, a lot of research for the critical essay that I wrote that was uh, mentioned at the beginning, like my little introduction there. <laughs> um, I did a ton of research. And as I was doing the research, I was really inspired to sort of um, find a unique way to bring the lesser known aspects of myth, at least that is like lesser known in America, um, into modern fiction, while still finding a way to make them relevant. Um, because I am really passionate about these myths. I am really passionate about the history of the various cultures. And I just wanted to do something a little bit different. Obviously, we have, um, you know, the, the Thor movies from Marvel and things like that. So there's definitely stuff relating to Norse myth and Germanic myth on the market right now. But a lot of the, you know, just like the minor details and lesser known characters and things like that are really just overshadowed by those more famous myths. And um, yeah, that was actually the inspiration for the novel I am working on currently. Oh, cool. I'm so ignorant to like all of these 
I guess mythological topics and anything Iceland and anything. Into like uh, like a like a smoking room with like two history buffs or something. <laughs> and I'm just. And she was just so... looking for the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much that. Yeah, that's probably super accurate, actually, to my life. <laughs> uh, I'm like, so I just don't know very much about history in all honesty. So this is so fascinating that you know so much about this. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a whole different world that I've like never heard ever. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for well, sharing. Yeah, a lot, well, a lot of it, like I said, it's it's not really discussed on this side of the world. People know like the really big famous stuff like Thor, Odin, what have you, but a lot of this has just kind of fallen by the wayside in America and people don't really study it. They're not really exposed to it in school. And um, I think personally, I think it has a lot of value. So I would love to see it brought to the forefront. Why, why do you think it has a lot of value to today? It's like today's world. Um, well, you know, you said you just read my, uh, my Beowulf article and I sort of touched on it a little bit within that article. I think both as sort of, I guess when you look at the evolution of literature, um, I think there's always a value in going back and looking at the roots. You know, you have uh, Joseph Campbell with the whole concept of the monomyth, and obviously a lot of these myths very much fit into that. Um, and so in a way, you can draw these comparisons between various cultures, even outside of the Germanic realm. Um, pretty much every culture everywhere has some variation of the monomyth. And it's really interesting to look at that comparatively and see how we evolved as different cultures. Mm -hmm. um, I also think there's a lot of linguistic value to it, of course. A lot of these were written in what are now dead languages. Um, and so from a linguistics perspective, we have a lot that we can learn from them. And lastly, of course, there's the history value of just looking back and seeing how things were, seeing what those cultures cared about, what what sort of moral ideals they held, what they saw as the ideal hero or the ideal person, um, or what have you. And so what is your novel about? So I can give you um, a little bit, of, I guess, of a quick elevator pitch. <laughs> um, it's actually set in the Duchy of Holstein, which is uh, now a part of Germany. It was ruled by Denmark. Uh, in the year 1848, <laughs> which is probably a bit of an unexpected year, mm. um, but it was a year that really brought up this question of Germanic identity, because it was it during that year, basically, um, a war broke out between the duchy and their rulers in Denmark. Um, you had the German Confederation, which were these unified duchies a little bit further south that then came to the aid of the Duchy of Holstein. You had Sweden went to the aid of Denmark. So basically you had just all these different Germanic cultures dragged into this one war during that era. Um, and so that's why I picked that setting. Now to go into the actual plot, uh, the actual plot focuses on a young man who is haunted by visions of this sort of mysterious azure blue fire and he's also at the same time dealing with this prospect of financial ruin thanks to his missing father. So he sets out amidst this brewing political unrest and a very unforgiving Scandinavian winter and heads out to find where his father has gone. 
Uh, and that basically takes him to the very far reaches of northern Scandinavia, where there's these whispering forests and family trees are rooted in legend. And while he's there, he's trying to figure out the past that his father hid from him. I don't want to say a whole lot <laughs> about how exactly legend comes into play. Um, but if it's not obvious from the pitch, it's, you know, the whole story is centered around this this concept of Germanic identity and the cultural similarities and the cultural differences and sort of how the characters handle all of that while dealing with their own personal, very every man sort of problems. Mm. How far along are you with this book? It's in the editing stages right now. <laughs> oh, okay, um, pretty far. <laughs> and uh, pretty far into the editing stages. I think I'm on my seventh or eighth round of edits right now. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, it's it's coming along pretty good. It's about 100,000 words. Um, oh, wow, okay, that's a good size. So, <laughs> not too long. I mean, you have no. some that are 300,000. No, that's but, perfect. Um, it's perfectly marketable. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Are you going with a so, traditional um, publisher or are you going to go with a self-publishing? Uh, my goal is definitely traditional publishing. Um, I am, you know, I don't have anything against self-publishing, but I just feel if I can mm -hmm. find the you know, traditional publisher who's open to this sort of thing, then I'll just be able to reach a broader audience. Yeah, it's usually, most people recommend usually to start with traditional publishing. It's, and it's kind of, the only problem with traditional, uh, the reason why I bring this up is because I really want to read your book. So I was hoping, I was kind of hoping you're going to self-publish it so I could buy it sooner. Oh. <laughs> traditional, <laughs> traditional publishing takes a while. Just like, it's just how it is, right? I mean, it takes like, it takes just a, a while to get the agents on board and the publishers on board and all that. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've, sort of just started the foray into um, looking at agents and things like that. Um, and my understanding is that, yeah, you're probably looking at a year before, it, at least before it would appear oh, yeah. in print. So, um, but I think that that patience hopefully will pay off. Definitely. <laughs> so yeah. Just crossing my fingers. It all works out. Um, do, you, do you use the writer's market book at all from, I think it's from writer's digest. I do actually, yes. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great great book, excellent resource for uh, all sorts of writing. Really, you have the short story market, everything. So. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Have you published anything else, like any other books? Because I, you know, I'm sure you're writing a ton. Uh, is this your first like major book attempt at a uh, uh, publishing? <laughs> Yes, this will be my first time seeking traditional publishing for a fiction novel. Um, obviously, like I've had my critical essays published um, and I do have a short story that should be published soon. Don't want to give too much away about that. <laughs> but um, in terms of, you know, agented, you know, big name publishing, this would be my first foray into that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Wow, that's pretty epic. Congratulations, at least, like, you know, even coming this far, that's, that's pretty, pretty great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you said that you're, you're really interested in, like, the hero myths and stuff, just because I'm more, I'm, I just know more about, like, the more Norse side of it. How, how much into, like, the Viking stuff do you get in your research and in your writing? So, like, into the actual, like, the, basically the occupation of Viking, like, rating and all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah or, exactly yeah. yeah um so in my in my personal fiction writing not a whole lot it's not so much my focal point um i think mm -hmm. there are a lot of other aspects of the culture that are worth looking at okay. um but when it comes to my research 
it's definitely something that can't be ignored. I mean, the whole concept of being a Viking is very reflective of the sort of things they value within literature, or yeah. maybe it's the other way around, <laughs> or maybe it goes both ways, I guess, symbiotic relationship. But, um, you know, they, they valued things quite a bit different from the way that we think of things in the modern era. Mm. I mean, selfishness to an extent was encouraged. Mm. Um, things like gold were just so insanely highly valued within their culture that, yeah, obviously in their minds, it was per perfectly fine to go kill some people and take their gold. And, you know, that's, it's a part of the culture that can't be ignored, but yeah. You know, you also have the the farmers and the settlers and, you know, so many different branches of Scandinavian culture that are equally interesting, in my opinion. That's actually a really good point. That's actually one thing. So I'm kind of more into the, the raiding stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the the uh, raiding that's and pillaging. Fair. That's perfectly fair. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of more what I paid attention to. But I do agree with you. So, for example, if you look at History Channel's Vikings, that TV show, that's one problem I have with that is that they don't really get into the fact that the Scandinavian people at that time actually had a really rich, like, I don't know if you would, I don't, you, you would know more about this than me, but I don't know if you would call it a literary, like a liter, a, a rich literature, but they were very literary in their own way. However, that was like, they had a lot of stories and things like that. So they were, oh, they yeah. were and like a lot of, uh, a lot of the Vikings, like the Viking Lords and stuff would hire people from Iceland because Iceland's, I don't know why, but for some reason, the Icelanders were really legendary for their storytelling abilities. And so a lot of, like, the Viking oh, yeah. lords would hire them out to come and, like, basically follow them around and then sing about how great they were in battle and things like that. So there was a lot so, of this going on. So now that you brought up Vikings, um, I don't, or like the actual show Vikings, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know why I didn't think of this before, because you asked who um, Sigurd was. So he is actually, in myth, the father of what is depicted within the show as, as uh, Ragnar's second wife. Uh, yes, as so Sigurd yes. is her father, according to some variations of myth. But again, the myth is so widespread that you have, I don't know how many different versions of it. Um, yeah. But I think they make mention of that in the show. Like, very briefly, she says something about her father. Yeah, they do. And yeah, then they, they name their one son, um, Sigurd Snake in the act. Yeah. So, named after his grandpa, I guess. <laughs> hmm. So, how do you feel about the Viking show? Do you do you think it's a pretty accurate representation of that time, or what do you what do you take? What's your take on it? Um, I enjoy it for what it is. There are like, I'm not really the kind of person that gets really nitpicky with historical dramas. To be honest, I know a lot of other people will be, oh, well, that's not accurate, and this person didn't live at the same time as this person, what have you. Um, you know, I just. Personally, I appreciate any kind of interpretation or representation of Germanic myth in general because, mm. if, well, from my perspective, there's not enough of it. I'm sure other people are kind of like, oh, yeah, <laughs> we've already seen it. <laughs> but for me personally, um, no, I, I, I enjoy watching it. Um, you know, I know one thing a lot of people complained about is the fact that Ragnar's this sort of like um, semi-mythical, maybe was a real person, maybe wasn't kind of figure. Whereas they depict Rollo as his brother, but Rollo was a very real figure that lived during a completely different era right. versus the one in which um, Ragnar's, like, I can't remember which text actually discusses Ragnar's myth, but it's set in a different era. Yeah, it's, that show takes a lot of 
creative license with time frame. It doesn't follow any logical time frame whatsoever. For sure. Yeah, it really, it really <laughs> it doesn't. Out, it starts out in it starts out in Lindisfarne in seven whatever that is seven ninety five or seven eighty five one of those. And then yeah. it somehow jumps to the invasion of England, which happened a lot later than that. And then these people are still like, you know, so it doesn't it doesn't pay any attention to to actual time frame. But, yeah, yeah, it's just it, to me, it's one of those things you just kind of have to suspend your disbelief and enjoy it for what it is. And that's sure, what I okay. do. <laughs> now, there's another another recent you probably you may not know about this. this is a little out there. But one recent one that I watched that I thought was actually in some ways better than Vikings was what was it oh shoot what is it called oh vinland saga have you seen that it's on amazon no i have not i've actually not even heard of that that's really so, interesting yeah so it's a little different so i don't know you have to be a little patient because it's in it's in anime form so like animation oh, but really? it's but it's literally it's very historic it's actually i would probably say a little more historical historically accurate than vikings and okay. it takes place basically in the invasion of england by canute the Great. Okay. Wait, then, why is it why, why so is it called the Vinland Saga? <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good question. So it's about okay, that's a really good question. It, it's about Thorfinn, who okay. is an Icelandic explorer, and he was one of the first settlers of North America. And he was okay. He was kind of friends with Leif Erikson. So basically, I don't okay. know. I really doubt Thorfinn was actually in England during all this, but basically, he gets kind of involved with these Vikings that are invading that are invading England, so. Okay, that actually sounds really interesting and I'm not at all opposed to animated shows, so I'll have to look into that. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a bit more nuanced than, like, Vikings was kind of really pushing, in my opinion, kind of pushing like a certain agenda throughout it, which I'm not saying it's horrible, but this is a bit more of a nuanced look at what the different sides were like and kind of what was motivating the different kinds of people at that time. So I thought that, I thought it was really great. Awesome, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. I have a stupid question. Go for it. <laughs> okay, so um, would I guess either of you can answer this because I have my own philosophy on whether I should read a book first or watch a movie. <laughs> uh, and I know this is so so elementary of me talking to both you writer peoples, but uh, I personally believe that you should watch a movie first and then read a book. Um, and reason being is I just feel like the movie is always a summary and people who read the book first are like, oh, they left it all these details and rah, rah, rah. So, any thoughts? I actually have a few friends that are of the exact same mindset as you. They refuse to read the book before watching the movie or the show or whatever, and then they'll go read afterwards. Um, I do. I, you know, personally, I'll just, it goes either way for me. Um it just kind of depends. Like if I watch a movie and then find out later it was a book, I'll go back and read the book. But, um, you know, I also do think there's benefit to reading the book first because it makes me a little more motivated to get to the end. Cause I don't know how it ends. So, you know, either way. <laughs> well, that's good. I feel like some people have like an extreme, you know, uh, opinion on that. And it's like, Oh no, how dare you ever (laughs) watch it before you read or or vice versa I guess but I don't usually hear the opposing side which is like you know my my personal opinion side so good to know (laughs) (laughs) I actually feel like it for me it depends on how worthwhile the book itself is to read so if it's like a if it's a book 
So for I don't know, like if you're reading a book, there's, there's like different ways books are written. Like right? some books are written like, for example, Tolkien is written really, really well. And that's yeah. a book that's worthwhile reading for anybody, regardless if you've seen the movie. However, there are some books that just aren't written that great. And you basically get pretty much the same experience by watching the movie. So that's that's my opinion. It depends on how worthwhile the book is to read. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I can agree with that. Although I do know there are a lot of people out there who would very much disagree with your Tolkien statement. I don't, but <laughs> I, you know, I get, definitely, huh? I get really tired of the same old, like, whenever people bring up Tolkien, they always bring up, oh, he writes so many descriptions. It's annoying. And I'm like, that's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're the kind of person that's going to sit down and read Lord of the Rings, then I feel like you're probably going to be the kind of person that's totally into all that backstory and all that detail. So I don't yeah. understand when people complain about it personally, but I do know it is a common complaint. Well, I think it's kind of like what he's, I don't know. Cause I, I mean, I'm not at all an expert on Tolkien at all, but I think what, what I would imagine he's kind of trying to do is trying to elevate the language and give it some sort of, I mean, give it some sort of beauty, you know? Yeah. So my understanding is he actually wanted to create his own myth for England because he right. felt like England didn't have like a quality myth. Right. And so when it's approached from that perspective, I really can't see why anybody would complain about it. But of course, the average person doesn't necessarily know that going in. And so then maybe they uh, take issue with how many words there are on a page. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's a different kind of thing, but it's worth experiencing. Whereas uh, some books, I don't know. Some books are really more just, it's kind of, I feel like a lot of fantasy books are very much based around just action. You can kind of get the same sort of perspective from the movie or the TV show or whatever. Yeah, I can agree with that. Uh, as for Kristen, are you making money as a writer? Is this your full-time job? Like, you know, I don't know exactly how your, what your career is at this moment. <laughs> I think I heard that you're a copywriter. So is this what you're doing full-time or... So, yeah, I'm a full-time copywriter for a company called Delta 6 Digital. Uh, we're a digital advertising and social enterprise agency. And uh, I'm one of the lead copywriters at the agency. We work a lot with, like, uh, nonprofits. Um, there's some pretty major names we've worked with, although technically I'm not really supposed to name them, I don't think. Um, but definitely names you'd recognize. And you can find some of the clients on the Delta 6 Digital website. Yeah, so that's, that's what I do full-time is I work for an agency and get to work from home, which is awesome, and still make money. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, actually. Um, is it, like, did this begin for you, your journey into copywriting? Because obviously you love to write. It sounds like it. You know, don't let me put words into your mouth. <laughs> <But> <laughs> it sounds like you enjoy writing and so was this um in kind of a middle ground because I don't know if this is correct but I would assume that you would probably enjoy writing fictional tales and you know books and stuff like that um uh professionally instead of technically you know we don't want to smack the hands that feed us but <laughs> like you know I assume copywriting probably wasn't the exact dream growing up but it was this something that you got into as kind of a middle ground career? Yeah. So, I mean, it, definitely it wasn't a, a dream. Um, however, writing for a living was the dream and I do get to write for a living in at least some capacity. So I can't really complain about that at all. Um, I 
didn't specifically look for copywriting. I had done a marketing internship when I was in college and um, it ended up that one of my great friends from college, Nicole McDonald, um, actually called me when she had gotten a job at this, this company and uh, asked me whether I'd be interested in doing like a quick internship. And uh, within like a week or two of the internship, I was hired on as an assistant. And um, from there, I pretty rapidly was able to move my way up to become one of the lead copywriters. Um, and actually, funnily enough, my friend Nicole also worked her way up very rapidly. She's actually our chief operating officer now. So she's one of the, the big wigs in the company. Super proud of her. <laughs> wow. That's quite an accomplish uh, accomplishment, especially I feel like I hear of writers who really struggle in this whole process and you know just being first of all open to copywriting I feel like some people are just like no I want to be an author this is my one goal in life and so that's really great first of all that you're open to becoming a copywriter and just kind of saying like you know what I want to write it doesn't necessarily matter um what I'm writing exactly you know, mm -hmm. as long as I get to be creative and, you know, use words and share that with the world, that's a really great thing. So that's awesome that you're getting getting into getting into copywriting professionally is pretty hard, right? I mean, there's it's there's it's a pretty competitive field. It, yeah, it's definitely competitive. Um, my advice to like anyone who would be aspiring to get into the field would be take on internships and just network all you possibly can because you never know when somebody you know might be able to help get you an interview or just introduce you to somebody important or what have you, um, which I know is kind of generic advice, unfortunately. Um, but there really is no trick to it. It kind of does, unfortunately, come down to luck with a little bit of skill. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's definitely a competitive field. And I'm very grateful that I am able to do what I do. But once you're in, there's there's a lot of opportunity, right? I mean, there's there's all kinds of people out there who need skilled writers. Definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, you'd be really surprised. A lot of these major companies that, you know, you see commercials on TV and you hear all about them, you would think that they have their own internal department, but a lot of the time they don't. Um, a lot of the time they outsource, and that's where the bulk of our work then comes from, is we're just getting work sent to us from all these different companies, all these different nonprofit organizations. Um, on the day-to-day, -day, like the main thing I actually do is I manage blogs and social media for uh, various companies. So kind of keeps me busy. <laughs> That's awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun, actually. I'm sure it's like extremely tedious and having to manage that many. I'm sure you have a lot of different companies that you have to keep straight. Um, yeah, <laughs> but that's really, really great. <laughs> yeah, it can it can be really fun at times. Um, it can also be, you know, a little bit hectic, a little bit stressful. But what job isn't? So <laughs> um, I don't I don't dwell on that aspect of things a whole lot. Um, I just, you know, I enjoy getting to to use my creativity just a little bit every day, just constantly working towards expanding my writing career in whatever way I can. So how, how did what you studied with uh, myth and what you studied in college, how did that help you prepare for a career in copywriting? Oh, <laughs> that's, huh. Um, well, I guess I, 
that's not a question I was really prepared for. Um, I've always been really <laughs> into language and the power of language. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, like, that does go back to a lot of the stuff I've done with comparative myth because I've focused on, you know, how language evolves and how different words can sort of impact our interpretation, even if we think they're synonyms, but they might not be exact synonyms. Um, And obviously, when you're doing, like, literary criticism or a critical essay, comparative lit, what have you, um, you really do hone in on specific words and almost to the point of it can be obsessive where you're just breaking down okay why did they choose this word and any casual reader would look at it and be like what the heck is wrong with you it's just a word but that's definitely a big focal point when you're studying texts like you know the ones I study and I think that is extremely helpful when it comes to copywriting because the main goal of copywriting obviously is marketing and brand awareness and those are fields where you very much need to be aware of your word choice and how you're coming across to customers. Awesome. That makes sense. And so Kristen, one last question that I have, I noticed that you have a pretty big and also loyal following on Twitter. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to grow their social media presence online? Do you have any like tips and tricks for how they can do that? Uh, You know, it, thankfully I find, I find that Twitter is extremely welcoming Um, for writers especially, there's a great community. And I think that really helped me a lot when it came to building a following. Um, But I think in terms of getting that engagement, because even if you get the following, I've heard a lot of people say they struggle with the engagement aspect of things. I think it just kind of comes down to being as genuine as you can while still being professional. Um, A lot of mistakes that I see people make, and this is probably coming from my copywriter perspective is they just get a little bit too personal on their professional accounts or, you know, they complain a little too much or what have you, or they're just not posting things that require or ask for any kind of response. Mm. Um, And the way I've been able to engage really well with people is just, you know, asking questions and, you know, kind of posing different problems or hypothetical situations where then everyone engages with it and that boosts your number of impressions. It, it boosts the number of retweets, everything, where then you just reach a wider audience. Um, I would also, um, I guess both of you kind of can answer this. I know I've talked to Joe a little bit about that you feel like there's a greater writing uh, following on Twitter, like, at least in regards to, like, my whole uh, world and my career is like the entertainment industry and so we're heavily based in Instagram and so do you feel like there's a world out there for writers on Instagram also or do you feel like it's kind of specific specifically like better for Twitter (sighs) so I've been struggling with this actually for a little while because I do have an Instagram for my writing But because it's such a visual medium, it's really awkward to approach it from a writing perspective. Some people kind of go the route of, you know, sharing their book of the week or what have you, um, whatever they're reading, posting their reviews, that sort of thing. But I think it still remains a really difficult, a really difficult platform for writers because ultimately, like the vast majority of people on Instagram are just going to scroll 
and double click to like because they liked the picture. Interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. just, that's my thought. <laughs> no, and I think there's some truth to that. And I guess truth to anything that it's all, you know, not a lot of people are sitting there even reading captions that you write, you know, within the whole thing. It's like, oh, you better make this picture good. And yeah. Yeah. Interesting thoughts. Um, and it's just so different from like the world that I come from. So, whoa. Well, good job on, you know, having a nice following because it's, it's a really, really tough one to just having, you know, growing that. And I think from any platform at all is just growing a following. That can be, it's a lot of work for sure. So good job. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so speaking of growing your following, Kristen, where can our listeners find you online? Okay, so... I have a website is the easiest one because then you can just branch out from there and find me everywhere else. Um, and it's just kristenjmiller.com. Uh, Kristen with a Y in the second syllable. I don't know. Should I spell it out? <laughs> um, K-R-I-S-T-Y-N-J Miller. Hopefully everyone knows how to spell Miller. Yeah, that, that pretty much from there, you can link to any of my social media platforms. Uh, like I said, I have a Twitter, I have an Instagram, I do have a Facebook page as well, and a Pinterest. Very cool. And Kristen, we'll be we'll link to some of your accounts and to your website on our website and also in some of our some of our social media posts. And yeah, it was a pleasure to have you. Uh, we'd love to have you back again sometime and talk about some more mythology and cool things that, that you're into. And uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, no problem.